You are listening to the audio edition of Unstoppable Farce, The Mitch Maloney Story, by Mitch Maloney, read by the author. Chapter 9 Children of the Frack Hole I wake up on a pile of moldy magazines and coffee-stained rolls of carpeting, brush myself off, pull myself up, and stumble around as my eyes try to adjust to the daylight. But I only get a few feet before I slip in a pile of chicken bones covered in what looks like rice. But, yeah, I know, those are maggots. There's an electric buzzing all around me. My ears feel like they're melting off the sides of my head, and it feels like I'm trapped in a fifth-generation bootleg videotape stuck on fast-forward. I could have been down here for ten minutes, or thirty-seven days. Your guess is as good as mine. I do remember where I am. The middle of a vast, desolate, forgotten wasteland, deep in the woods of Alabama, known as... Skahilfis dismik, the Shady Grove, Alabama household slash industrial landfill slash frack sap sequestration depot slash hazardous materials incineration center. Luckily for the chuds, any deadly use of Comito Defendu had been averted. My Swedish chauffeur Leif's extreme affability smoothed things over with the trash-dwelling mutants, and they ended up inviting us back to their makeshift village of scrap metal huts and cardboard lean-tos down at the bottom of the frack hole. There they offered me their holy sacrament, and I didn't want to be rude, so I injected the white skunk juice, and the next thing I know, here I am, face down in chicken bones and maggots. If you've never tried living in a multi-purpose disposable waste facility, take it from me. It's no Modesto Days in. It's a wasteland. But a wasteland isn't just a place. It's a mindset. And according to Patton Oswald, a category of humanity. And most comedians qualify as wastelands. Wandering the land, pointing out so much of what we perceive as culture and society as disposable waste. And note one. If you thought I was going somewhere funny with this, keep in mind I'm quoting Patton Oswald. Suddenly an armadillo scurries by. It reminds me of the ones I chased around back when I was living in a tent next to the Mississippi River after Hurricane Katrina, and I was working at the secret FEMA camp where the government was hiding all of the dead people. But, you know what? That's a whole other story. So why don't we just file it away and maybe I'll circle back to it a few chapters from here. The armadillo scurries under a heap of mud-caked clothing on top of which is a large, ripped velvet painting face down. Gets me to thinking about the Velveteria, my violated sanctuary back in Lipstick City, where my ever-loving lady friend Kara is minding the shop when she isn't busy working on her novel or riding bikes around Griffith Park with Haim. I had hoped she would join us for the tour, but her interest in travel has really dropped off since we installed that 
extra deluxe chocolate brown corduroy sectional sofa. I turn the painting over and I'm almost knocked off my keister, not from slipping on maggots this time, but from a wave of nostalgia. I remember the first place I encountered one of these things. Not just a velvet painting, but the very concept of dogs playing poker. It was the Midway Drive-In Weekend Swap Meet, where Larry Jackson and I would puzzle over kitschy detritus like this painting, and blow our paper root paychecks on old Mad Magazines, Howard the Duck comics, and early editions of Garbage Pail Kids. What am I talking about? Mitch Maloney doesn't do nostalgia. Mitch Maloney is all about living in the present moment. But it's hard not to get sucked down the drain of nostalgia when you're literally wading through the castaway scraps of the general public. Or maybe this wistfulness, this longing for yesteryear is a side effect of the white skunk juice. Of course, that's why these progeny of the filth are so hung up on the past, so fixated on their lost causes. Well, I gotta snap out of this nostalgia trip. I look around and spot a dented box of defective kaleidoscopes. I pull out two of them and hold one up to each eye. Maybe, if I hold them just right, I'll be able to see into the future. Maybe, if I twist them just so, something's coming into focus. It looks like a demented mini-putt course in the middle of the desert or something. I gotta get a closer look. I'm walking towards it, and suddenly I lose my footing on something slimy again, and now I'm rolling backwards into a jagged crevasse. Somewhere along the tumble, I lose the kaleidoscopes, and now I'm on my back again, in absolute agony. I'm at the physical bottom of a pile of rocks. I guess you could say I've really hit a challenging set of circumstances. On the plus side, my vision is clearing up a little bit, so maybe the zazzle of the skunk juice is lifting. And then something drops down next to me, a makeshift rope ladder with the rungs made out of human bones. Sure, it's disgusting, but the first rule of show business is don't overthink the situation, because when you start to overthink things, it can really slow you down. You start missing opportunities and deadlines, and the next thing you know, you're getting text messages from old friends asking you when the next chapter's coming out, and you tell them, maybe tomorrow, and then the next thing you know, a week has gone by, and at this rate, you're never going to get out of this hole. So I reach for a femur and slowly raise myself from the gravel. Brings to mind the wise words of the legendary Whoopi Goldberg. Folks at the bottom rung are having a rough time pulling themselves up to a better place. And folks up top aren't always reaching down to lend a helping hand. There's responsibility to be had at both sides. And note too. Luckily, the toddlers of the trash are doing their part. Not only do they help me up the ladder and out of the hole... They lead me to this cleared-out spot in the middle of the small loads area, where they're setting up for some sort of fancy feast. 
and I only wish I was talking about cat food. At first, I wasn't sure if I could trust the chuds, probably because the glowing eyes and the creepy whistling and the fact that they live in garbage and bathe in frack sap rub me the wrong way. But maybe they're not so bad. Are they living in a reality of their own making? Definitely. But I'm not exactly in a position to judge anyone else for that crime. Are they against gay rights or trans rights or abortion rights or racial equality? Probably. I mean, they're not what you would call fluent in English. And I don't understand the grunt patterns that form the foundation of their primitive language. But judging by the tattoos and the t-shirts and the lovingly maintained collection of Confederate statues plucked from the debris, I think it's safe to assume that the answer to all of the above is yes. They probably even believe the big lie that NASCAR is a legitimate sport. But hey... Agree to disagree is a thing people used to say, and maybe there's something to it. Like Mort Saul said, I don't believe in good people or bad people. I believe in the better parts of people. And note three. Which I guess is something me and Mort have in common with the chuds, I think to myself as one of them hands me a Dale Earnhardt Jr. commemorative plate with what looks to me like a gallbladder on it. But what do I know? I'm just a quipster, not some gastroenterologist. So I take the plate, and then I pull the old, Hey, look over there. It's a coastal elite libtard groomer. And slip the organ into a piece of wet newspaper when no one's looking. Call me old-fashioned. But this is the aspect of the Chud lifestyle that I find the most difficult to overlook. The cannibalism. Not to mention it's just the sort of thing that when the tabloid media gets a hold of it, can really get whipped up into some sort of a brouhaha. But a fella's got to eat after all. And luckily there's a couple of options other than the charred flesh of my former colleagues like some well-prepared fried green banana peels and some tender pulled panda shoulder in that scrumptious Alabama white barbecue sauce. That's right, we're eating panda, but not the kind you're picturing. You know how sometimes people north of the Basin Vixen call raccoons trash pandas? Mitch, Mitch, I'm, I'm really, really sorry to cut in. You know that. But I am pretty sure it's the Mason Dixon, okay, as opposed to the Basin Vixen. Mason what? Mason Dixon, as in the historical demarcation between the northern and southern states. Never heard of it. I'm talking about the Basin Vixen, a demonic singing fox that lives in an antique washing basin at the north end of the salvage yard. Sure, and the uh, the people north of the Basin Dixon refer to raccoons as trash pandas? In my experience, yes. But to the south of the Basin Dixon, people just call them... <sighs> just plain pandas. At least, people that live in the dump. Okay, if you say so, Mitch. Darberius, 
Mitch. Thank you so much. I'm just doing my job, Mitch. For completely blowing my bit about trash pandas. Are you familiar with the concept of... The concept of... Timing! Cheese and rice, what are you doing to me? I'm sorry, Mitch, I'm just... This whole interrupting engineer gag, or whatever it is, is really stopping up the flow. So, adios. Bye, Mitch, if you say so. Anyway, so I'm eating my pulled panda and banana leaves, and then a couple of the urchins of rubbish come over to me with something... And I can tell by the way they're holding it aloft on a ripped and faded pillow that it represents great power and mystery. They bow down and present me with what appears to be an ancient tablet. Like from the early 2000s, one of those Windows XP machines. I can't believe it still works. And it looks like they even got an internet connection which makes me feel pretty dumb for not checking my phone. I probably could have skipped this whole chapter. They fire up the tablet, and after some cheesy patriotic graphics and fireworks, a man comes on the screen. A Canadian convoy-style yahoo with long curly hair, plaid flannel jacket, and hunter's cap. He's all worked up, yelling about sending naked pictures to aliens or something. And the fledglings of filth are laughing and pointing from the cracked screen to me and back again. It's one of those clip-clop videos I made in character as Wade Dinklington, back when I was using Flavum Sardonic Zone. I barely recognize this person, and have no memory of saying these words, which are building up to something about the looming war and... Now he's screaming about the kingdom of Diagonal Anoleum over some god-awful new metal rap rock garbage and saying things that would never fly on this transmission. Stuff that's way over on the other side of what we comedians refer to as the line. Things that Mitch Maloney, the woke but still edgy alt-comedy rising star, would never get into. Because Mitch Maloney always knows exactly where the line is and walks it like a fucking tightrope every time. But this character and these words seem so far from me now. I wonder if it's possible that this old discarded tablet got hit by magical lightning or something and this is a cross-transmission from a parallel dimension where the Lithuanian chupacabra has reached the same degree of fame and influence as Mr. Mirth has in this one. Now the urchins of the muck are circling around me, whistling. And I can tell this is turning into a whole deal, like they want me to officially join their chud club through this creepy ritual. Look away, they're whistling as they close in on me. And I can tell, if I don't start whistling soon... The next delicacy to be served on Dale Jr.'s face is going to be some Maloney baloney if you catch my drift. But I'm not about to join them. Not because I think I'm better than they are, or that I'm taking a stand against racism, homophobia, cannibalism, or poor hygiene. But because, as anyone who knows me well could tell you, if there's one thing I can't do, it's whistle. 
I look around for Leif. Maybe he can get me out of this jam. But he's nowhere to be found. I haven't seen him for days. Or maybe minutes. But possibly years. Fortunately, I've got a little something in my back pocket, if you know what I'm talking about. That little pouch that's attached to the back of my trousers. It's got a harmonica in there. An anniversary gift from my ever-loving lady friend from back in the chucklebunker days. I learned just enough to write one song, the No Talent Bluesman Blues, and then slipped it into that back pocket and sort of forgot about it. I'd always planned on getting good at it, you know, just 15 minutes a day or something, but that sort of got moved to the back burner when I became an international celebrity. So my attempts at joining in on the harmonica, or harp, or mouth organ, as we sometimes call it here, south of the Basin Vixen, isn't what you might call beautiful, or in tune, or recognizable as any sort of music, but something about the flat notes and tortured warbling is appealing to these whippersnappers of waste, and they break down weeping. Or maybe they're actually writhing in pain. It's hard to say with mutants. Where could Leif be, I wonder? And then I look across the table. I see the human torso that's been split open and carved up like a Chateaubriand. The beefy leg roasting on the spit. And what looks like testes and a savory gravy. It just isn't like Leif to miss this kind of a smorgasbord. Suddenly, a large vehicle crashes through a barrier fence. It's a bus. It's my vintage Greyhound. And not only is it fixed up, it's been given the full Thunderdome upgrade. I guess Leif was able to cajole a couple of these scamps of the scraps into helping him spruce it up with salvaged parts, including spike tire wells, razor wire and chain-link outer armor, a functional inverted bulldozer shovel in the front, and propane rear-pointing flamethrowers mounted over the back fenders. There's even an old fiberglass tiger from a vintage coin-operated kid's ride to replace the dog on the side that had melted off. It might be a little more weaponry than we really need for a comedy tour, but in today's climate, well... I guess it's better to have it and not need it, if you know what I mean. As Leif roars down the country road, I figure the first order of business is coming up with a catchy new nickname for this supercharged tour bus. Maloney Mobile seems a little obvious. Mirth Mobile? Sounds like something from the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Laugh Liner feels too corporate. Leif suggests the Skratskabil, which I'm guessing means something in Swedish, but I tell him to focus on shaking off the chuds that are still clinging to the side of the bus and leave the snappy nicknames to me. And then I've got it. The Jolly Japaloppy. I have to shed a little tear as we drive away from the Skahilfisdomik. Not because I'll miss the children of the frack hole. Because honestly, they were pretty creepy and gross. But because my story, 
This whole career of mine so far is pretty heavy on mutilated corpses and pretty light on rubbing shoulders with other famous comedians like I was hoping for. I gotta figure out how to get this narrative back on track. I gotta get back on tour. But to do that, I'm gonna need a co-headliner who's gonna fill that Gadsby-shaped hole on the bill. But who has that special something that Gadsby brings to the table? That unique ability to go so long without telling anything resembling a joke? Who seems to have almost no interest in saying funny things and only wants to lecture people on their divisive unpopular opinion and making people so tense and uncomfortable that the slightest hint of cleverness or humor is met with applause and laughter but mostly applause if i can't have the great gatsby i guess i'll have to settle for grandmaster chappelle i tell leif to head for yellow springs ohio This audio edition of Unstoppable Farce, the Mitch Maloney story, was made possible by the Seventh Reformed Church of Latter-day Witnesses, the Bleepers.